The views, information or opinions expressed in the following podcast are solely the views of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of any third party. Any information provided is of a general nature only and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. In particular, you should seek financial advice prior to making a decision. You are listening to The COVID Economy with Joseph Healy. Joseph is a 35-year career international banker, having held executive positions at NAB, ANZ, CIBC World Markets, Citibank and Lloyds Bank. Joseph is also the joint CEO and co-founder of Judo Bank. In this episode, Joseph is interviewed by Frank Versace, Judo Bank Managing Director of Relationships for Victoria. Together, they discuss the current unprecedented health crisis that is COVID-19. So, Joseph, um, really interesting times to uh, understate things. Uh, really keen on, and I'm sure a lot of our customers are keen on, you know, your broader experience, not just with this crisis, but what you've experienced in the past and really getting an understanding of what scenarios you've been through in your career that have most approximated what we're going through at the moment. Sure. Thanks, Frank. I mean, as you know, and I've had an extensive career in banking over 35 years um, in Australia and in the UK or Europe in particular. But uh, this, this is as many commentators have said, this is quite what we're currently experiencing or watching almost real time is quite unprecedented. I mean, when you think back to some of the earlier crises that we've had back in the early 90s, of course, that was a crisis in, in Australian context, um, a, a crisis that there's the recession that we had to have to uh, quote the prime minister at the time. But it was a recession that was brought on by the banking system by excessive, uh, sometimes quite reckless lending. And most people listening will be able to recall all of the names of or the more famous or infamous names of the borrowers who were involved. But that was a crisis that occurred three or four years after deregulation of the banking system here um, with the influx of foreign banks and, and a lot of competition to grow lending books. Then we had a crisis, of course, a global financial crisis, 2008. Um, again, a crisis that was caused by the financial system, banks, excessive leverage and speculative activities, uh, poor disciplines, uh, all of which eventually came to a head and, and history shows the cost of the global financial crisis on the real economy. Not, not so evident here because of how well our government and our fiscal position and our, and our banks were placed at the time. But in, in many parts of the world, United States, Europe, continental Europe, the economic costs of the global financial crisis are still being paid for. And it's a decade or, long, or more longer than, than uh, since then, but the costs are still being paid for by, the, by society. And then you look at the crisis that we're currently experiencing, which is unusual because it's not a crisis that started in the financial system where most of the other crises have. It's a crisis that really is a crisis of, uh, that has a strong health component to it, of course. It's a, it is a health crisis that's impacted all aspects of society. Uh, and it's a crisis then that's, that, that is playing out also in an economic sense. I mean, society, I think, and the politician, our political leaders have been quite wise to give priority to health first and foremost. And, and the economic implications of the measures that have been taken are 
uh, just the price that had to be paid to make sure that we kept people safe. And those, but those economic costs are still to to be borne. They'll they'll be significant. We we all know that, but they they will play out in time. Now that crisis that's currently feeding its way through the economy uh, hasn't yet fed its way into the financial system, other than of course the stock market, where we're seeing big corrections. But many people forecast that the banks will see significantly higher levels of bad debts and than has been the experience of the last 10 years. And so there will be an implication in the, in the, in the banking system and the financial system, but not material, because the banks and, um, in particular uh, are very well placed for dealing with this situation in terms of balance sheet and liquidity. So I don't envisage that this will be a crisis in a financial sense. There will be ramifications in a financial sense to the banks, um, but not a crisis. It is, however, undoubtedly a crisis in the health system uh, and a crisis in, in that's playing its way through the economy. So very different, Frank. There's no playbook here. There's no roadmap or, of how this has worked out in the past. All of the other crises that have dated back over centuries have largely been crises that have been triggered by the banking system and uh, and their irrational exuberance in trying to grow their business by uh, poor lending and, and other risk-taking disciplines. So, so really fascinating responses there, Joseph. Thank you for that. Keen to pick up on a couple of the things that you talked about. So number one, that there is no playbook, and that is true of governments as it is of business and um, as it is in our context. But in relation to the government response specifically, and you spoke about the fact that this is a, a health crisis in the first instance with economic ramifications, but, but just how you would assess the government response thus far, um, and in particular, the economic hibernation measures that are hitherto unprecedented and whether, they've, whether they're the right response and whether they're going to be effective at limiting the damage. Well, I mean, this is this is the great question of today, and it'll be a question that I'm sure will be subject to many papers and textbooks in the years to come, because how the future will will assess the way that this crisis has been managed will be full of very diverse views of that. I'm, I'm quite sure. But what I would say is that I feel the government have done the right things. Have the government done it perfectly? Perhaps not. I'm not sure there is a perfect way to handle this, but what they have done has been very decisive. They've, um, they've, they've looked at what needs to be done to protect our communities and to place health and the well-being of our citizens as the single biggest priority. And for a government that traditionally um, belongs more to the, the conservative side of fiscal management, uh, you you have to compliment the Prime Minister and his Treasurer in the way that they did really whatever it took um, to try and stabilise what, what what could have been quite a severe correction. So I feel that they have commendable steps on their part. Uh, I, 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 um, I look back at the global financial crisis and the measures that, that the government at that time took. You might recall the helicopter spray of money to keep households um, spending and the huge um, guarantees that were given to the banking system uh, and a whole range of other stimulus that in many ways, and I think history, if it's kind to the government back in, the Kevin Rudd government back in 2008, will say that they handled that really well as well at that time. 
Um, of course, they, they, what did happen then was it went from a government that was had very little debt and a strong fiscal position to a government that had um, found itself with quite a bit of debt, but by international standards, comfortably set. So I think my, my view is that the decisiveness by the government has been one of the standard examples of leadership. Um, when you compare that to the hesitation that we've seen in governments in many other parts of the world, um, I think that our government has done a marvellous job. And time will tell just how successful that is in managing through and minimising the um, otherwise might otherwise been quite significant damage to the economy. Um, time will tell how, how well that is done. The concept of hibernation of business is an interesting one. I mean, most of us will think of bears when we think of hibernation. We don't think of businesses as going into hibernation. But but it's a useful metaphor because the what we're really saying is that we want to try and protect business uh, for a period of time uh, as best it can be protected so that when things return to some degree of normality, then that business can kind of come out of hibernation, so to speak, and, and start operating as pretty much as they had done pre the crisis. The, the big question is, can business return to, and will the, how quickly will the economy return to a pre-crisis situation? My sense is that's at least 12 or 18, or 18 months away. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to take 12 months for us to come out of the current um, lockdown. I, I think that will happen gradually on a, a, a industry by industry and region by region. And, and that could happen quite soon, actually. If, if the current uh, trends in the virus um, continue in the direction that they have shown in the last um, week, then I, I think that government might feel more confident in loosening up some some aspects of the economy and, and then progressively over time loosening up others. So, for example, I would envisage that should, should things continue in the direction that they're in, that domestic travel, uh, airline travel, will return to some resemblance of normality, but international travel won't because the, because the risk, uh, when you see how this disease has spread, particularly in countries that felt they had managed the risk, um, that risk uh, reignites through international travel. So I think an ultra-cautious approach to international travel will be on the cards. But I hope to see a, a gradual easing and a, a gradual loosening, if you will, of the constraints that are placed on business and on the economy. And that could happen, I would guess, by the end of April, perhaps, early to mid-May. Great. And, and so just, again, just sort of thinking through some of the things you've talked about there and shifting gears a little bit to start doing what I know is very challenging and, and thinking about what the world might look like at the other end of, of the crisis. Do you see any sort of more permanent systemic changes to the Australian economy, in particular things like has has this sort of you know, shaken up world supply chains and our, our nations going to become more nationalistic in their approach to, you know, certain essentials, goods and services and look to, you know, will this lead to the re-emergence of manufacturing in Australia in some context um, and any other changes at that this early stage you think are likely to be an outcome of all this? Well, I think undoubtedly there's going to be significant changes in the way that people think about the economy, the way they think about business, 
the way they think about globalization. And in the political domain, um, I, I think the nature of politics and the role of government will, will undoubtedly change um, in quite a marked way. And in fact, in many ways, the social contract that defines the relationship between government, the business community and society generally, which really since the, since the Second World War has been a very uh, capitalist-driven um, contract where business, uh, business has been on the forefront, free market economics has been the governing philosophy, and small, business, small government has been also a very dominant view held by many societies around the world. And so I, I think what, what we'll see coming out of this is a redefinition of the role of government in society, uh, you know, just by sheer magnitude of the amount of expenditure that's been, uh, or money that's been poured into the economy, both here and around the world. I mean, in most developed economies, government stimulus over the course of the last two or three weeks has been in the order of 10 to 12% of respective GDPs. That's huge. And in some countries, that's already on the back of quite high level of government debt, not where Australia, relatively speaking, has been well placed. But obviously, that debt has to be paid for. And so you're looking at a world of bigger government, higher taxes, I would argue, would be a thematic of the next several decades. And I think businesses will be looking at the supply chains, to your point. I think governments will be looking at economic sovereignty, to use a phrase that I've heard over the last week or so, and saying that there are some critical industries, some critical aspects of the supply chain that governments would prefer were domiciled within in the country, not outsourced, say, to China or India. I think one of the things that's impacted on a lot of businesses is that parts of their supply chain or business models that have been offshore for the last decade or longer, because it's been cheaper to have them offshore, uh, will have had an abrupt shock over the last couple of weeks when call centers in India, for example, were no longer available because of government policy in that country regarding lockdown. So I, I do feel that I don't see the end of globalization, but I do see a much more cautious approach to what is critical and therefore should be should be in country, what is uh, less critical or, or risk of which can be easily managed, uh, that could be subject to a lower cost environment for for services and, and for production. So I do I, I do see an upswing in, in nature and the configuration of, of business within the domestic economy. And that's going to be interesting how that unfolds. But I also, I think the bigger, bigger issue is going to be the uh, the, the bigger role of government uh, in in the economy and in and and how our GDP works. It'll be we're back we're back in an era of, of big government, and and hence the, a re a redefinition of the social contract that governs the um, the way society operates. And, and you see specifically um, in a banking context any implications from that rebalancing? Yes. I, well, I think what we've been observing in the banking industry since the global financial crisis and in Australia, particularly since the Henry Royal Commission, has been 
not so much the invisible hand, but the very visible hand of government through regulatory bodies like APRA, uh, being much more actively in, involved in the way that banks operate. I mean, we saw last week, for example, the central bank in the UK and the Federal Reserve in the US and APRA to, uh, um, here in Australia um, send very strong signals to bank banks uh, about paying dividends to shareholders. Now, in a purest sense, um, most of the, us who have been brought up in, in a very market or capitalist-driven paradigm of the world, the idea that private companies can be stopped from paying dividends by essentially by government, when these are normally matters for the board and shareholders, is a significant shift away in the in the in the context of what I would call the way the political economy works. So I see that banks are going to be subject to a lot more direct in, in, um, intervention from government through regulators in how they conduct themselves. And that's partly due, as I say, to the the, the embarrassment that came out of the Hay and Royal Commission. But that trend was already there from, from the global financial crisis. And the banks in many ways um, have become quasi-nationalised entities and I think that that um, the degree of government involvement in the way that the banks operate will only become greater not lesser and that'll be a feature of the economy for at least the next decade in in my opinion um great so Joseph um just one final question we've we've covered quite a bit of ground from sort of global to local economics the financial system um, and the nature of government intervention bringing it back to you know the client base that, that we serve which is the the small um and, and medium business community are there any sort of against the backdrop of everything that we've talked about are there any thoughts that you have around what small and medium business operators should be thinking about more specifically in this in this climate yeah i mean my my comments um have largely been framed on big big issues on the nature of the macro political economy uh, that, that's not for one second suggest that we're not going to have a vibrant uh, market economy, particularly amongst our SME uh, customers, businesses across Australia. I think the opportunities to come out of this crisis and potentially coming out of this crisis with a, you know, a very, very considered view of how the business should operate and succeed in the future, taking taking the opportunities that will flow. I mean. The, the having a big government is not necessarily a bad thing for small business. Um, big you know, governments of all dimensions are always very supportive of small and mid-sized businesses. So I, I would anticipate that that the promotion of small to mid-sized businesses will be a big feature of a, a policy as we evolve out of this. So I, I would be, as you know, Frank, very optimistic about the opportunities that can that will emerge um, for businesses that are looking to expand, for businesses that are looking to reposition. This is a great time to reflect on what you want your business to look like for the next five five years. Uh, you've, we really, really get an opportunity to get off the dance floor of day-to-day -day activity and go onto the balcony and look down and say, this is a, this is a systemic change that's occurring in all aspects of business and politics of domestic and international institutions 
what's my strategy for making sure that our business succeeds um, in a in a world that will be different, not worse, but it'll be different from the one that we've had coming into this crisis. So I would be optimistic. I would view this as opportunity, not threat. Uh, there is no, I see no world where small business does not become uh, critical to the success of the economy and is growing. I mean, big businesses don't hire people anymore. If you look at big businesses across whole range of services from banking to telecom to information, uh, it's all about automation. It's all about cutting down, cutting back on on, on people costs. But that's not the case in small in the small in a, in a small business environment where businesses are growing. Technology is going to be critical for any business, but so too will people be, uh, and and there will always be, I think, a very strong economy here relative to the economies we see around the world. So I, I would be very glass half full about this, and I'd be excited in a way. Might sound sound ironic, but I'd be excited about. The potential for opportunities that will exist as uh, we emerge out of the the current uh, environment. Great, um, thank you, Joseph. That's been hugely insightful for me, and I hope so for all our um, customers who've tuned in. So, thanks very much for your time, and thanks everyone for listening. Pleasure. Thanks, Frank. company is the owner or licensee of all intellectual property rights in this podcast, including but not limited to the copyright and any rights in the designs. You are permitted to use the podcast for personal use, but not for commercial use without a license from us. You may not make any recordings of or otherwise copy the podcast.